We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness is the chef and cookery book writer, Claire Thompson. She writes a cookery column for the Telegraph newspaper and has a popular Instagram account called Five O'Clock Apron, which is built around the idea of creating proper food for modern families. Her latest book is called Home Cookery Year, which has 200 plus recipes for all possible occasions built around the four seasons. It has ideas to inspire, but is down to earth enough not to be intimidating. Claire is married with three children and family cooking is something that she's passionate about. I've asked her to be my witness today because there could be a connection between our relationship with food and our relationship with life. There is certainly a link between food and love, which I'd like to explore more about. Welcome to The Meaningful Life, Claire. Thanks for having me. What is your earliest memory connected to food? Well, I was born in Zimbabwe and grew up for a while in Botswana. So my first memory of food is sitting on the steps at the back of the house, eating light cheese with the sweet juices like dribbling down my legs. Uh, I remember just eating so many at once, I felt almost ill. But I remember that. And then I also remember biltong, really. We used to sort of have massive great sticks of it and sort of almost cut our teeth on biltong, really, as kids. And that's a meaty dish, is it? It's like air-dried beef cured in the wind. It's very sort of intense and sort of almost salty, like a charcuterie. And do you think this has changed your palate from friends who were brought up in the UK? Wow. Yeah. So um, my mum's always cooked quite adventurous food for us. I think, yeah, when we arrived in London in the sort of late 80s, my brother and I were quite a little bit different. We'd had a lot of outdoor life, really. Yeah, we didn't have the fish fingers and things of, of many of my friends, but we did have normal, more what you'd consider sort of more normal diet, I suppose. We did eat spaghetti and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think we had a really interesting upbringing with food. And what was your parents' relationship with food like? I don't really remember my dad eating much food. I remember him always with a fag and a whiskey. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't really remember him eating an awful lot. My mum, my mum cooked. She loved food. So we'd always eat outside, really. We had this wild summer sort of hot. It was always sunny. It'd be colder <laughs> in, in the winter months, but, you know, we'd always be outside. And, and I, had a, I had a very different upbringing, I suppose, until about the age of nine. And what do you think the impact has been of that? Well, I really do view the world through the prism of food. You know, travel is something I'm deeply passionate about. And travelling to different parts of the world and, and connecting through food is, is my raison d'etre in, in any travel I've ever done, both as a, as a kid, as a, as a grown-up and with my own children. So give me a country that has had an impact on you as far as food is concerned beyond Zimbabwe and Botswana and Africa. I would say China. Mm. My stepmother is from, my parents are separated and my stepmother is from Chengdu in the central province of China. So I've worked over there as a chef. We got asked to go and teach some Chinese chefs how to make English pies. So, um, <laughs> What was that experience like? It was extraordinary. So uh, we would go and teach them how to make Western style pies. And then in our split shifts or our breaks, we ask all these Chinese chefs to teach us to cook, you know, their food. 
It was extraordinary. And what I think is amazing about China, much like my feelings of Italy, I suppose, is the regionality and the diversity of the food and offer in that one country. So there's the kind of rural foraging aspect of Chinese food. Like there was a walnut tree that this chef pruned all the new growth of the walnut tree and then did this amazing sort of stir fried dish for those. And then there's that really elegant, fine dining sort of wealth and riches cooking really that is in Chinese food. And yeah, had a huge impact. You know, in China, the most expensive cut of meat on a duck is its tongue because it only has one. So if you're rich enough to have a plate of duck tongues, then you're really doing well in life. You know, it's amazing. I once took my niece, who is a little bit of a fussy eater, to Chinatown in London, and we had dim sum. And one of the options was duck tongue. Yeah. And I mean, you'd think that we had suggested that she chopped out her own tongue rather than <laughs> try it. And I never realised that ducks have bones in their tongues as well. Yes, they're very strange texture thing to eat. It's like a, oh, it's, well, it's like a tongue. Yeah, but it's very strange. It looks like a tongue. It's quite unnerving to look at, but it's tasty. <laughs> and would you eat chicken feet and things like that, which I'm sure they eat in China, but we don't tend to eat here? Absolutely. Chicken feet, fish eyeballs. There's these restaurants in Chengdu and Sichuan province and all over China, really, these hot pot restaurants where you have a boiling vat of liquid in the middle of the table. And then along the sides of the walls, there's almost like a shopping smorgasbord of things that you can choose to pick to put in your hot pot. And they come on little skewers and then your bill at the end of the meal in this restaurant that we ate in would be tallied up with how many skewers were under your table. So just, I've travelled to China three times on quite extensive trips. And the last time we took Grace, my oldest, and that was incredible. I held the backpack with her and my husband had the backpack with the rest of our stuff. I think travelling with children is brilliant. And what did she make of Chinese food? Well, she was 11 months to 14 months when we did that trip. So she was a baby. So She just opened her mouth and she put it in. Yeah, had lots of little steamed egg dishes and boiled rice. And, you know, it was great. And has children changed your relationship with food in any way? Yeah, uh, yeah that's loaded. <laughs> in what yeah. way is it loaded? Because I... I'm a chef, so everything I do is to do with food. That's my job. But I've also got three children I have to feed. So I, I'm conscious that I don't want to be too dictatorial with them and food because I'm aware they're three children who live in an environment with two chefs for parents, recipe writing, always testing food. So sometimes they just say, can we just have something that isn't a recipe test? Or, uh, you know, I really want to eat macaroni and cheese. And I'll be like, well, yeah, fair enough. We've had some pretty wacky configurations of food. Sometimes it's recipe testing and there's just lots of different things on the table. And other times it's more of a complete sort of idea to the dinner. Having children has not changed my, no, that's what's probably quite unusual. I haven't changed my thoughts on food. I've tried to be as passionate and as different in my diet with, with them as I ever have been as a chef. Because for some families, there's sort of children's food and there's adults' food and you don't have that division in your house. And I think you feel quite passionately there shouldn't be a division. No. So tell me why you feel passionately about that. Well, I work, so I don't want to be cooking two meals because that would be double the time of work, wouldn't it? My husband works. I also, you know, we're lucky to eat the food that we eat. I, I just can't countenance a child saying I don't want to eat that it's not very nice because I know it's nice because that's my job it'd be like saying you know a child who had a tv producer for a parent saying oh, I don't want to watch that it's rubbish tv because that's what they do and I know that the food I make is nice very rarely I think there's been one time when we did this kind of smoked Japanese chicken rice thing that they couldn't get their heads around that and babuti 
which is a South African dish of mince and raisins and apple and chutney cooked with a kind of bechamel, like a moussaka. They couldn't get their heads around that either. <laughs> oh, I, I quite fancy that. That sounds good. <laughs> I, I am, yeah. I'm. This is food. We have to eat it. And we're really lucky to eat the food that we eat. And there can be exceptions that they absolutely don't want to eat. Like my middle one wouldn't want to eat a mushroom, but give or take. The way I cook is also quite inclusive. There's lots of different things on the table. I like to have a sort of, you know, lots of stuff to embellish your own stuff with at the table. So hot sauce or yogurt or nuts or seeds or anything that they then can have a bit of autonomy with over their own meal in front of them. I think that's important. I think that's a, a really good tip that there's a certain amount of choice and there's a certain mm. amount of build it yourself sort of kind of thing. Yes. It's a force field, isn't it, with kids and eating? They, it's what they can control. They can just not open their mouth and not eat that food. But I think if you give them a bit of sense of autonomy that they can choose what they would like, then I think that helps the whole negotiation process. I mean, they're great eaters, my kids. How do you get a good relationship with food, do you think, for children? I mean, I was a fussy eater as a child, but I mean, I will eat absolutely anything now. You know, kangaroo. I haven't actually chosen off the menu the chicken feet. My husband quite loves chicken feet. I mean, if I went to somebody's house and they prepared it, I would eat it without any problems. I once actually served (laughs) rabbit to a set of friends and... By an unfortunate coincidence, one of the guests' husband was going the next morning to shoot rabbits. And the conversation around the dinner table while, you know, the food was being prepared was, you know, how could anybody, one, shoot a rabbit and number two, eat a rabbit? And I was thinking, oh, I mean, egg, this is what we've got for supper. And one by one, they all went around the table saying they could never, ever eat oh, rabbit. No. <laughs> oh, and, no. t- and I was, I was going to say, that we went to call it by its German name, Hnenschen. So, you know, perhaps just hide what it actually really is. And the sort of eat no bunnies campaigner turned to me and then said, what are we having? And I said, rabbit. (laughs) And she laughed. Yes. And then she realised the horrible truth. And then one by one, everybody, you know, accepted that they had never tried rabbit and they would try it. And in fact, everybody enjoyed it. How do you get from eating nothing to being prepared to be adventurous with food? So I just want my children to understand that food is a portal into exploration. So spices or the back of that kitchen spice rack, you know, that's how you can navigate the world through flavour, isn't it, really? And if we eat the same thing every day and only stick to, I don't know, here in the UK, turnips and spuds and whatnot, I just think that you're not going to have an adventurous mindset. So I really encourage my kids to rifle through cookery books with me and point out what they want to eat. And then we can talk about where that food comes from in the world and how, you know, we might like to eat it one day when we visit there and stuff. So I think having a narrow mindset in anything in life surely makes you more of a narrow person. So I really want my kids to look outwards. And food is a really easy access point to travel, I think. So We like Mexican food, we like Thai, Mm. we like Chinese, you know, and I think that's really exciting to look on a map and see where that might be. I've travelled quite a bit and so has my husband and where we might like to go together one day, that kind of thing. Mm. So what inspired you to write Home Cookery Year? That's a real luxury to be given a year to write a book by publishers because usually they're quite snappy, those books. (laughs) So a year to write a book is how I eat. And it was just great. I wasn't inspired to do anything. It's almost like a blueprint for how I cook and shop throughout the year. People said, how did I come up with so many recipes? But there's so many different foods that come in through the seasons and stuff. So, yeah. So while writing the book, disaster struck, didn't it? And your notebooks were stolen. Tell me about that. 
I have a really rubbish car that's parked outside my house and I don't think I'd even locked it. I'd been away for the weekend surfing with some friends and I was unpacking my car and I hadn't locked it. It's not automatically locking or anything. And someone just whipped my bag out while I was unpacking the car and went off with my handbag, which had my notebook and my wallet. And I've always kept a notebook ever since I started as a professional chef. It's either got recipes written in it or shopping lists or sorts that I might like to cook. So the spring notebook was taken from my car, which is a bit of a nightmare. And I never got it back. (laughs) You made appeals on the local radio to get it back, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought, well, I don't really mind the wallet. Whoever took my wallet had spent £60 on, and then I stopped my card, whatever. That was all right. But it was just the book. I just thought, God, it's just going to be launched into a rubbish bin. And it probably was, and I never found it, which it was a shame. So what did you learn from that experience? I learned... Nothing's as bad as it seems, really. So I was absolutely mortified on that day, but it was all right. It was fine. I just, (laughs) I caught up. There's worse things that happen out there. So I learned that definitely. And whilst I felt terrible on the day and I was really cross with the person who stole my bag, you know, that person's not in such a great space probably than I am at home here. So you have to be a bit more zen about it, don't you? And they're probably cooking all the most wonderful recipes for spring. (laughs) I hope so. I really hope so. That would be a great outcome, yeah. <laughs> you find that they're watching your car to see if they can get the rest of the yeah, month. Yeah, yeah, great. No, I, I only wish. I wish that was the case. And how in tandem do you think most people are with eating with the seasons? Well, quite apart from being a sensible way to cook because it's what's coming in, it's the most economical way to cook. So, I think you have to cook within the seasons because if you're eating asparagus in November here in this part of the world, then you're having it air freighted. You know, it's more expensive. There's climate problems with eating non-seasonally. I just think it's a no-brainer, really. We should just eat the way the food comes in in season and it's a cheaper way to cook. And also you get that reflex of what to cook, really, if you just follow what's in front of you this season. I live in Berlin. There's a lot of Turkish shops and they have a lot of fruit and vegetable and it's always what's actually in season. So it's quite exciting when you suddenly see, oh, they've got quinces or they've got Spargel, as we call it here in Germany, Spargelzeit, which means asparagus time, is a time of celebration. Mm. You know, that all the restaurants have nothing but asparagus. And it is quite inspiring to think of, oh, what could we do with figs, for example? I think that's how we should cook because that's how nature wants us to cook. And there's a symbiosis in food, isn't there, where one thing comes in and then another thing that matches that thing in flavour or contrasts in texture that we might like. That's how it works, food, I think. Yes, definitely. And so let's use an example of summer. Give us some thoughts of something interesting that we could do in summer. Courgettes. People have a lot of courgettes when courgettes come into season, don't they? (laughs) So it's a brilliant vegetable. You can fry it really hard, scapacci, have it like little tiny crisps and put vinegar and mint over it like they might in Italy, or you can cook it overcook them, boil them, squash them, mix it with tahini and garlic and lemon and do it more like a kind of meze dish. Or you could make a lovely risotto. You know, if you look to the world, I look at ingredients, I identify what I want to cook by ingredient, and then I look to where I want to cook. And I find that gives you a natural reference point for what would go with that. Where you want to cook. Where I'd like to cook from in the world. So a meze of like squashed, overcooked, like boiled down courgettes that you then to squash all the liquid out and then chop it with dill and garlic and lemon and serve that like with flatbreads and yogurt and toasted nuts and seeds. Just that reference point is where you're cooking from in addition to what you're cooking. 
You see, I have learned something over the years because many years ago, I once interviewed the cook Fanny Craddock. Are you old enough to know who Fanny Craddock is? I know who she is. <laughs> For people who don't know, she used to cook in a ball gown and used to boast that she never got any mess on her ball gown. So this gives you an idea of what a grand dame she was. And so towards the end of her career, I was interviewing her and I asked the question, what is your favourite meal to cook? And she said, what a stupid question. It's going to depend on what time of the year it is and where I am. It's going to be something entirely different on the Cap d'Azur than it is going to be from London in the winter, isn't it? She's quite so right. So you see, I've learned something. I mean, she was the rudest woman I've ever met in my whole life, but I did learn that actually food changes dramatically in seasons, which to be perfectly honest, I just thought that was a perfectly acceptable question. But you know, now I realise it was an entirely dumb one because the seasons make a huge difference to the food we eat. And what we need to provide through the food that we're serving at any given time. You know, there's meals in the winter where it's dark and cold and you need to bring your family together, don't you? But then there's picnics in the summer where you all want to be out and about. And I feel like food definitely anchors the time and sense of place of what we're cooking in. Did you always want to be a, a chef? I, no, I wanted to be a journalist, actually. So I, oh, right. I did journalism, film and broadcasting as my degree, but always cooked at university and then went traveling after university and ended up in Australia cooking and then Thailand. And, and then I sort of thought, hmm, this is, might be my route into journalism. So I started cooking and, and sort of documenting what I was cooking, really, yeah. But I've always cooked as a child. And, um, you know, I'm a, um, I did definitely as a teenager have some eating issues. And I'm aware that with three girls here at home now that I want to provide them with none of that. So I've always tried to make food a really sort of positive force at home for my girls. When you say eating issues, what sort of eating issues? Uh, definitely an eating disorder, like anorexia type thing going on, uh, which is no longer a problem. Lucky me. But I'm aware that I've got my girls and I kind of almost gone into food like a real like battle axe. Kind of, right, this is going to be the way it is because I don't want that to happen to my children. There's no food that's bad food. If they want to eat Paribo sweets, they can. But, you know, you've got to have some broccoli with them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how did we manage to get to the point where we had good foods and bad foods? Mm, no, I don't approve of that. So I just think all food is great food. And, you know, there's times and places where you can eat more of one food than the other. And so breakfast, lunch, dinner is non-negotiable. You know, it's got to be good and wholesome. And then if there's the other stuff that comes into their life, that's good. As long as they're doing sport, I think, oh, it's making my heart rate go. Just keep talking about it. <laughs> I, I did have problems as a teenager, so I just don't want that to be the case for my girls. So um, I just try and make food really good, really happy place for everyone. And how did you break out of it? I went to university and cooked. And I thought, God, this is a bit isolating, feeling like this, you know, being the person that doesn't want to eat things and stuff. So I, um, I just stopped. Yeah, I cooked. I'm a, that's why I'm a chef. I'm a feeder of people. Absolutely, mm. it's linked. Had an issue with that stuff. And then I grew up and started rethinking it. And that's how I sort of got into being this kind of, I was the feeder in the university household. Of, I fed people. 
you must have been so popular. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't have to do the bills, which is obviously not my strong point either. So it works out in the wash. I mean, I arrived at university. The only thing I could do was literally boil an egg. And it was horrifying, really. But fortunately, because everybody shared this tiny kitchen with like eight or nine students and just three rings, there was always somebody else cooking as well. And you could ask for advice and help. And I sort of learned that way. But it is extraordinary that I managed to get to the age of 18, you know, and I literally could not cook anything. No, I, my parents separated and my mum and I were a single family. My brother was at boarding school. I stayed with my mum and I cooked throughout my teenage years twice a week, a proper meal. And yeah, so I went to school, university, knowing how to cook, really. That's down to my mum, I suppose. And you would cook, but you wouldn't actually eat. Well, I would eat. I was quite a competitive child, so I did lots of sport as well. So I did have that issue. I think it's about control, isn't it, eating when you're a teenager? And I don't know about adults with eating disorders, but it was definitely about being controlling, being the best at something when I was a teenager, because I was quite competitive. Mm. So being the skinniest, being the fastest, you know, thankfully I'm not there anymore. (laughs) Mm. And so changing your relationship with food changed your relationship with life? Definitely. So help me understand that. So I think I am definitely the sort of person that does things at 110 miles an hour. And I am very competitive. So switching it around and becoming this person into food and cooking, I sort of navigated all those feelings into being the best I could be in food. Reading, I read everything on food. I read all these food writers. I read all the food media. And then I wanted to be the best chef there was. So then I sort of snowballed into a sort of kitchen And it's quite a strange environment. Well, it was, it's probably changed quite a bit now in the last 20 years. But 20 years ago, when I was in a restaurant kitchen, I was the only girl. There were seven men and I just had to sort of keep up with them, really. So from being this kind of person who was just obsessing about food and being in that realm as a teenager, I wanted to then be the girl that could keep up with the boys in a restaurant kitchen. So I wanted to work the most shifts in a row. You know, I took doubles left, right and centre. Doubles when you work a morning and an evening shift, you know. And I just obsessed about food in a whole new way of like making it. (laughs) So, you know, I definitely don't do things by halves as a person. It sounds exhausting. (laughs) Oh, but in your 20s, it doesn't matter, does it? I love that machismo. I love the energy and I love that kind of, yeah, the machismo. I I found that really electrifying. So what was it like when you and your husband got together, two foodies together? I shudder to think. Yeah, so he's a chef as well. We met in a restaurant in London where we worked really hard in a restaurant in London for about nine months and we saved up our ticket to go travelling and then we went off for a year and that's when we went to China. So we work, interesting when you work with your partner, we don't (laughs) work that well together. (laughs) We're very good at what we do in our own components, but in a restaurant setting, in service, well, I don't have to do that anymore, nor does he, but that is a challenging scenario for a partnership, really, because Matt essentially was was the person in charge, and that's difficult to take, isn't it, from your partner? Mm. So we don't work together anymore, but we do work in other stuff we do now, like recipe writing and books and stuff, and he does stuff similar to me sometimes, but just restaurant setting. A restaurant, it's like going into battle you know it's that six o'clock you have to be ready with all your mise en place I love that feeling in my 20s but I wouldn't like that now (laughs) has cooking helped you slow down a little bit because I imagine that food has to be cooked at the pace it has to be cooked and you can't just sort of rush it along oh my god you can actually sort of calm down a bit now 
or am I living in fantasy land? I'm sure if you asked any chef what temperature they put an oven on, it's always 200. And how fast they put their burners on on their gas, it's always the top, you know. I think if you've been a chef and you've worked in a restaurant setting, you're always primed to be like that. High octane cooking, (laughs) everything turned up, go, go, go. So yes, you know, that's what you're programmed to be. But now I'm not in a restaurant kitchen and I cook at home. You can slow things down. And that's why the book, in each section of the book, there's a chapter on like leisurely cooking because we can't cook on one time setting because life is different isn't it so Mm. there needs to be that fast paced energy cooking and then there's absolutely those times in life and the week when you can have hours to sort of listen to the radio and cook something slow so i've been thinking of some ways that food does make life meaningful because it brings people together doesn't it yes that's important i think you can have a certain amount of self-development through cooking what do you think Define self-development, improving yourself. Well, improving yourself sounds a little sort of brisk and sort of, you know, somebody's got a cane behind you. But exploring yourself and seeing what you like and becoming more yourself as opposed to the sort of person that your parents felt you should be or society wants you to be. That's what I mean by self-development, becoming the person you're meant to be rather than the person that everybody else wants you to be. Through cooking, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's you're learning something, you're perfecting something. Yeah, definitely. And you're challenging yourself as well, aren't you? Yes. You know, you're thinking, I mean, there's quite a few things that I would quite like to cook in your book, but I'm sort of thinking, you know, am I up to it? And so, you know, that sort of kind of challenge and going against your preconceptions about yourself, I think is what I mean by self-development. Well, ultimately, I hope that through my work of recipe writing, I can prove to people that food essentially isn't something to be daunted by. So I would hope that nothing in my book would make you feel like I'm not good enough to cook that. I would want everyone to say, gosh, I could do it. Time withstanding, you know? Food is easy because of what we've talked about before with the seasons. It's easy. It's just food. That's what I think about food is that we should just not be worried about it or anxious or daunted by it. A recipe, if you've got an hour to do a recipe, then great tackle that recipe. But if you don't, don't tackle that recipe, do something else. Therefore, nothing should be too difficult with food. It's just food. (laughs) Sometimes it's difficult to find the ingredients. That's something that I struggle with sometimes. So I really like to offer sort of alternatives in my work of like, if not this, then that. If you haven't got courgettes, use a pumpkin. I think that definitely recipe writing is infinitely more helpful if it's not too didactic that you can switch about a bit and that's about confidence isn't it if you grow in confidence with your knowledge then you can have that confidence to be less having to follow things by rote that's about having flair and confidence and hopefully I can teach that and cookery and love seem connected as well yes definitely well because you're nurturing people aren't you and Mm. you're feeding someone and you're giving your time and your energy and your and you're thinking about someone. I, there are things I cook for someone that I wouldn't cook for another, you know, and that's really nice. When my daughter went to high school, I spent the day working from home, but also made this pie for her, a chicken and leek pie, because I wanted her to come home and see that I put all this effort into something that's really lovely. And when we shared the dinner, she talked about her first day at school, and that was a really great moment. And I can feel the emotion coming back at the moment. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> And I think there's something about a pie 
It's very homely, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. It could be that the one thing that's almost impossible to buy in Germany, where I live, is pies. It's a very English thing. I can quite see why you went to China to teach them how to make pies. It was so brilliant. So in the cooking methods I've been taught as a chef, you know, when you make a stock, you almost have it this tiny little blip of liquid, barely escaping bubble of steam on such a low heat that, you know, the essence of this meat bone sort of stock is how you get it. And it goes on for hours, sometimes overnight in a restaurant. In China, they prefer to cook it really fast at a high volume, the bones. So they sort of really bubble and all the fat sort of emulsifies into the liquid. And you get this very different looking stock. I can't say which is better. When we were making these stocks to make our pies, the Chinese chefs were just like, you're not going to get any flavor from your bones. This is ridiculous. So they kept turning up. We'd be like, no, no, you have to turn it down because you don't want the fat emulsifying. It was brilliant, but that's what's great about cooking. I couldn't say which stock tasted nicer, but they're very different things. Well, another way that food is meaningful is it brings people together. You know, we have these Chinese chefs and you together and a sort of a cultural exchange that you couldn't really get any other way, could you? No. You know, a conference, you would never get to understand each other quite so much as you did yes. in that way. I mean, just two different styles. We had saumonier on our menu one week because they asked us to do a fish week after the pie week. And we did saumonier. And that's when you grill a sole with butter. But in China, the fish are alive in tanks and then are killed to order. You almost choose your fish. But when a fish is killed, the bones kind of go into rigor mortis. So you have this bendy fish because it's kind of seized up as it's been killed. So we'd be trying to grill these fish like this under a grill. And of course, <laughs> they wouldn't grill because you couldn't get them under the grill. We tried to explain to them that we needed the fish to be flat again. And these chefs were like saying, but no one would want to eat your fish because they will see that it's being killed for hours before you've cooked it. So we were like, we can't do salmonier then. We have to do a different thing. And that's great, isn't it, about food? Yeah, I mean, we're just learning so much about the different cultures, just literally by talking about two different dishes. Mm. And this idea that one food isn't better than the other, that is so refreshing, isn't it? Because we live in a world now that, you know, we're the best and you're rubbish sort of kind of idea. And food is not like that, really, is it? It's a coming together of all different cultures. I think food is just inherently generous, isn't it? It's generous in being food and having access to food. But I've never been anywhere in the world and not met someone who hasn't wanted to show me the way they do something with a recipe or an ingredient. And there's that kind of generosity in food and cooking that I don't know if any other professions have that kind of willingness to show you something. There are, there must be, but that's why you can never say I'm done, I'm the best chef that I can possibly be because you'll go somewhere in the world and that person will say, oh gosh, like the stock, the Chinese stock. Oh, we don't do it like that, we do it like this. And you're like, oh, you know, it's different and that's great. And that's back to the self-development, is it? It's challenging yourself. There is no one way. No. And that's incredibly exciting. Yes, definitely. Food is endless, isn't it? It's an endless portal to learning. I think that a lot of people reach a point where they want to change their lives. They want to live a more meaningful life. And I think you need to start changing your habits rather than making one great big sweeping decision. And really, when it comes to it, food is something we do every day. So actually, if we want to change our lives and perhaps lead a more meaningful life, possibly we need to think about changing something about the way we eat. So let's sort of think together about how we could eat more meaningfully. Oh, well, I think that's about rhythm, isn't it? And 
there's certain things I make at home that have a rhythm to them. And if we stop the rhythm, then they're not there anymore. So we make a lot of kombucha at home. What's kombucha? Kombucha is like a fermented tea drink that has a scoby. Scoby is like a big bacterial kind of growth and you put it over tea and you ferment it, cold tea. And it's kind of like a really refreshing sort of sour drink that is really good for you apparently to drink. And so you have to make that because it takes sort of seven to 10 days to make. So that's about a rhythm. And then if one of us doesn't make the kombucha, we make it in two litre jars and there's no kombucha. Likewise, sourdough, all these things that, you know, through the last year, people have sort of taken on as systems of cooking and providing food. I think that's definitely meaningful. I love that about food that, you know, there's a glut and then you have to process it like lots of tomatoes and you make hot sauce and tomato ketchup and tomato jam and chili jam. And then it's there for a year. And that's really nice. That feels to me important, really. I I think if we didn't do that, I wouldn't really understand why I cooked as a profession. And do you shop in a sort of a a similar kind of rhythm or do you have one great big shop? No. (laughs) That puts the fear of God into me that I could never do a meal plan or do one big shop a week because I I would feel hemmed in if I had already decided on Sunday what I was going to eat on Thursday. I like to just decide what I want to eat on the day. I'm lucky because we live in a city and I walk my children to school and on the way back from school, I walk past three different vegetable shops. So Mm. that is lucky. My mum lives in the countryside. She doesn't have that access to, but uh, I like to cook a bit like that on the hop, really, given what the temperature or who's coming for dinner or whatnot. Mm, Yeah, I love shopping literally on a daily basis. I have a dog. It's another reason to walk past shops. The dogs are used to sitting outside shops while I go in. Some of them, they give him food. So he's (laughs) all for it. Yeah, Yeah, there is that about definitely how we eat and provide for whoever we're cooking with is absolutely meaningful. Yeah. I mean, I have all these things at home that I do and I do them on a kind of yearly basis. And it's like, oh, that's the time to do all that, you know, make all this pickled lemons and oranges and stuff for the whole year ahead. And I love that about food. I would, yeah, I love that. I love the kind of continuity and the isolation of ingredients that you can't then do it until the next year, like marmalade. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the great advantages of being a supporter of The Meaningful Life is that you can write in a letter to be discussed by me and my guests. And at higher levels, there's all sorts of other benefits. So have a look at my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, and you'll find out more. So here's a letter that Claire and I are going to think about together. I am at a crossroads and don't know which way to turn. Thanks to listening to your podcast, I've given myself a framework for discovering which way to go. So I have a test. What brings meaning into my life? Brilliant, except it pulls me in two opposite directions. Let me explain. I have two children who are six and three, and I love them very dearly, but I also love my job too. I'm in marketing. I'm good at it. I feel alive and productive while I'm there, but I'm also aware that my kids need me too, and they mean the whole world to me. My employers have been flexible and I work a four-day week. Since the pandemic, they're more relaxed about homeworking. 
It all helps, but just keeps me trapped at the crossroads. I have sort of been holding it together at work and at home, and I can feel my grip loosening. My children are at a special age, so loving and caring, and I know they'd like more of my time. I also want to work and be more than just a mother. Help. Any thoughts, Claire? Oh, God, that's every mother I speak to. (laughs) That is motherhood. Mm. It's very interesting that, from my experience, the fathers I know, they don't have that same feeling because it's just the way society is geared towards the male partner or the person who earns or something. I don't know what it is that makes that person. There's definitely one person who goes out to work and it's water off a duck's back. And there's the other person who has to juggle those feelings. And, you know, there was a few fathers in the pandemic that had the responsibility of staying at home. But for the most part, it was every mother I met had to do that. And that was homeschool and juggling your identity as someone who works and earns money in, in the role that you do, but also ultimately having children is such a responsibility. You know, it's an endless role that is wonderful. And I love it. And I, I hear her loud and clear. Uh, you know, it's brilliant, but it's, gosh, it's demanding. But you must have, I mean, I would have thought that working in hotel and restaurant kitchens and children, those two things wouldn't mix together. I stopped working in a restaurant kitchen. And was there some grief about that or was it an easy transition? Well, I always wanted to do this right. So um, my children are 14, 11 and 8. I've created this that they ultimately need me for certain things in their lives more than their dad because that's what I've made happen. Because I wanted to be that mum that they needed me. And so I've made that happen. So in the house, it's brilliant. I'm sure if other mothers might agree you know in the house when my children need something they don't shout dad they shout mum <laughs> and, and that's like three children going mom 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 and you know matt my husband will be standing right next to them but they'll still be shouting upstairs or downstairs for me where's my socks where's my PE kit whatever because i've created that so it's that push and pull isn't it like i i like that they need me so much but then it can be not claustrophobic it can be overwhelming and i'm sure when they leave home, I feel awful because that's, I've loved that feeling of need. And so your letter from your reader is, is that she wants to do her job, but she wants to be an amazing mum. And it's difficult to sort of split. You can't split yourself in two, can you? But in a sense, I think you've gone past that divide. You've actually brought your children into your work. It's a sort of an essential part of the kind of cooking that you do and the kind of cookery writer you are this is family food isn't it well, i'm really lucky that i've enabled this to happen for my own career route that is i work from home and i write about family food and i have a family that i feed there's osmosis on every level but so i'm really lucky but that's been a choice i've made a career choice that hasn't meant that i've had to be somewhere at nine o'clock till five o'clock every day because i've wanted to be at the school gates for my kids and i've wanted to pick them up They've never been to after school club because I, I want to be there for them. But there's been an impact on my own ability to earn money and, and stuff through that decision. So maybe when they go to high school and they're a bit older, then you can slightly get more of your kind of own work potential back. I'm very lucky to write and cook from home, but there are things that I haven't done because I've been here at home. And how have you dealt with that disappointment? I wouldn't say it's disappointment. I feel lucky. So I feel like it's a chunk of my life. That that's what I signed up for. I wanted to be one of those mums that I didn't have a nanny. I did that, you know, I've been present in their lives. And as they get older, 
then that sort of loosens a bit, I suppose. But I signed up for it. I was 27 when I had Grace. My father is quite a bit older than my mum and they split up, but I did absolutely make a decision to have children younger in life so that when they leave home, I'm still young enough to do some other stuff. I'll be 50 when Dot's 18. (laughs) Then I'm gone again. (laughs) And it feels to me like it's a bit of an artificial kind of division, children or work, that possibly if you start thinking, how can I combine both of them? You know, how can I do marketing for something that, for example, is child-related? How can I organize my working life so I have more control over it so that I can be both of these things? It's a a bit of a different mindset, which I sort of feel you've managed to walk between these two stools. But yes, but it's a very different job. My job is not an office job where I have to be concentrating and speaking to someone. For example, if my children were off sick from school today, this would be very difficult to navigate this hour because I'd have a child wanting a biscuit or an apple or something or, Mm -hmm. you know, help in some way. So you wouldn't be able to be like that. But But we would have coped with that, that a sick child coming on wouldn't have bothered me. But I wouldn't have had the concentration levels because I'd be split. So I can dedicate an hour and, and think fully about these questions. But if I had my children here, my concentration would not be with you 100%. Definitely. So as you've been my witness today on The Meaningful Life, I have to ask you the important question. What makes your life meaningful? My family makes my life meaningful in ups and downs and, you know, the different pieces of my family that my mum and my brother and my kids and my husband, how they all work. And that is definitely what it is for me that makes my life meaningful, that I need them, they need me. And I like the different, I can't think of the words, the different variations that come into play in different times. That definitely makes my life meaningful. Cooking, obviously, I'd feel like I wouldn't have any arms if I couldn't cook. I just, that's what I do when I'm sad or happy or elated or excited. Often I'll start cooking. I'm very physical like that. I like to, you know, I love the feel of a knife in my hands chopping things. I, I love that. I feel rooted to what I'm doing, who I'm cooking for, what time I'm cooking in. That's really important for me. And then I suppose swimming, being outdoors in the open air, having access to the wild. I, mm. I feel if I spend too much time in the city, whilst I live, love living in the city because it enables me to live the life like I want to live, so my children can walk to school and all that, I really need to be outside in the open air, in the ocean, swimming with my children. That's my best thing to do. I love that feeling of... I love that feeling of being in the sea and the waves. Mm. And one of the advantages of being in Berlin is it's surrounded by lakes. And so you go to a lake and swim in the lake and that is incredibly peaceful. Yes. We've got a lake here that we swim at. That's sort of, yeah, just that's what I like to do, swim with my children. That definitely, I, I miss it if we don't see the sea, particularly the sea. It's been a long time since I've seen the sea. I'm looking forward to seeing it again soon. That's another problem. Berlin is a long way away from the sea. Well, it's been fabulous talking to you. This is the point that the conversation ends for most people. But if you're a member of our supporters circle, you get to hear me and Claire talk about what we've learned from this experience. And she's going to share with me three things that she knows to be true. But uh, for the meantime... Thank you very much for being my guest today on The Meaningful Life, Claire. Thank you. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. 
Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.